HBpodcraft.com. Where shall I begin my tale? This one has neither beginning nor end, but only a perpetual unfolding, a multi-petaled blossom of strange botany. I might, for example, begin with Eliane. She has nothing to do with the story except that she happened to start it off, or rather, she happened to start me off on it. She burst into my room one day when I thought her 3,000 miles away, if not more. She opened the door and said, Here I are! Pretty, pert, and healthy. A certain amount of money and a certain amount of brains. Nothing extravagant, just a certain amount, but entirely sufficient for her purposes. Pretty, pert, and healthy. Ilianne sounds like my mirror world doppelganger. <laughs> yeah, I've always said that uh, Chris Lackey is whatever the opposite of pert is. That's him. <laughs> Although Ilianne has a certain amount of brains, nothing extravagant, which means that as her yeah. opposite, you have an extravagant amount of brains, oh. which is also something I've always said about you. Chris Lackey has an unnecessary and frankly wasteful <laughs> amount of brains. I really don't use much of it at all. You do weekly spread them out to the masses on this podcast, yeah. the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. That was the beginning of the introduction to Guy Endor's novel, The Werewolf of Paris. And it was read by an old friend of the show, Erwan G. Marshall. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Erwan. And thank you, everybody, for making October the new improved Werewolf History Month. Yeah, man, this is so new and improved. I can't even <laughs> believe it. We shouldn't even call it Werewolf History Month. It's because history's stale, you know, and this stuff is like... <laughs> Cutting edge. We should call it Fresh Werewolf Month. <laughs> this is like 30 days of uh, farm-to-table werewolf so fresh that we chose to do an 80-year-old book about stuff that <laughs> happened 150 years ago in France. <laughs> the Werewolf of Paris was published in 1933. It was a number one New York Times bestseller. Since it was during the Depression, it is rumored that Endor took a flat fee for the book and didn't mm. see any royalties. Oh, man. However, our man Robert Block, whom October used to belong to, mm. remember it was... October. Yeah. He said that this book is on the list of his favorite horror novels. Wow. Period. And also uh -huh. Brian Stableford said that this was the werewolf novel. <laughs> I feel like Robert Block just kind of fought his way back onto the show there. Oh, he did. He found out we weren't doing Blocktober, so he went back, wrote an introduction to the 1993 edition of this book, and then boom, <laughs> fought his way back on the show. I mean, you got to admire Robert Block. He's a fighter. <laughs> He sure, sure is. I also admire the author of this book, Guy Endor. You may recall that we previously covered his nonfiction story, The Day of the Dragon, <laughs> in which a scientist does a little corrective surgery on some alligators and they grow up to be dragons. Right, of course. We did a biography of Guy Endor on that episode, and he was the writer of novels and short stories, and he's best known as the screenwriter of Mark of the Vampire, The mm -hmm. Devil Doll, and he was nominated for an Oscar for the story of G.I. Joe in 1945. Yeah. Ironically, he worked for Universal Studios, but their movies The Wolfman and Werewolf in London are not based on his novel. You know, years ago, I don't know if you remember, but you and I got invited to one of those mall test screenings of An American Werewolf in Paris. I know, yeah. I went, did, did you go with me? Yeah, both of us went. You I, you gave some feedback on the film. I remember you I did. Just suggested adding a few seizures to it, I think. <laughs> but, I, you know, I thought that movie was an adaptation of this book. <laughs> So I, yeah. I was like, I'll barely have to read this. I've already seen American Werewolf in Paris, but boy, was I wrong. So you thought that in this book from 1933 that a guy bungee jumped from the Eiffel Tower? I thought you might. I thought it might be hinted at. Yeah, like 
it might be suggested. <laughs> Actually, I'm kidding. But there is a film adaptation of this book called The Curse of the Werewolf. Oliver reads in it. I haven't. I have. Oh, okay. I can't remember what year it is, but I'm going to watch it at some point this month. Oh, yeah. So we can talk about it on another episode. We should jump into the introduction of this novel. But first, I wanted to to do something. Yeah, the book sure. is great, but it's all over the place. Uh, at one point, the author even apologizes to the reader for going off on tangents. Seriously, he says, "Yeah, okay, that was crazy. Let's get back to the story. So I'm going to give everybody the TV guide synopsis of this book right now. Okay. That way, you and I can go off on little tangents. We won't get lost when we talk about the other things in the book. Here's the basic story of the werewolf in Paris. Bertrand is the bastard son of a priest and a simple country girl. He is born on Christmas Day with hairy palms and dark eyebrows meeting on the bridge of his nose, and he howls instead of cries. As Bertrand grows, he suffers from murderous dreams and his animal nature emerges when he visits a local brothel. Only his uncle, Gallier, suspects his true nature. He moves to Paris, commits a bunch of murders, but is cured for a while by drinking the blood of a masochistic rich girl. Circumstances of war intervene and pretty much everybody dies, except one guy who gets one of his eyeballs eaten up by some flies. That is the concise synopsis of this book. Every detail I provided there was necessary. But that's what's going on, so keep that in mind. If you ever get confused about what we're talking about, that's the core spine of this novel. There you go. Okay, let's talk about the introduction. Okay, so this book, uh, like so many that we cover on the show, has a wraparound story. From what we heard at the top, an American working on his PhD in Paris is visited by an American friend. Not that they were great friends, but since she was American, you know, and you're abroad, that acquaintance can become a really close friend. Quickly. So we don't get his name, but her name is Elian. And this girl loves to party. Like <laughs> right off the bat, this story gets spicy. Like this might actually be the bodiest story that we've ever covered on the show. Yeah, you know, sometimes we get accused of inserting sex into our analyses of these stories. Sure. But the insertion is all Guy Endors in this case. We, didn't, Ooh, we yeah. don't have to make it up. This is a pretty scandalous book, and I actually mean it this time. I'm not going like, oh, scandalous. Like, there's S&M. Yeah. Rape, mm -hmm. incest. Mm -hmm. I was surprised by it for a book from 1933, and I couldn't put it down. Yeah. I don't apologize for it. That's amore. <laughs> <laughs> Good call back there. Mm -hmm. Iliane shows up in Paris and she wants to hit the town. Our narrator wants to work, but is persuaded. Yeah, Iliane asks him if he's read Flaming Youth, which is a book from 1923 by Samuel Hopkins Adams about the sexual urges of jazz age women. It was made mm -hmm. into a silent film the same year starring Colleen Moore. It was a big hit that kind of fixed the image of the flapper in the public's mind. Uh, According to F. Scott Fitzgerald, I was the spark that lit up Flaming Youth. Colleen Moore was the torch. A little trivia, by the way, I named my novel Children in Heat after a Misfits song, but I also like that title because it was a bit of a nod to Flaming Youth. All right, there you go. That's true. Eliad loves Flaming Youth. She says, it's about the new generation that's growing up with freedom. <laughs> and this section, I felt, should be read by anybody who complains about those kids these days. <laughs> be modern, not a stick in the mud, she says. It's you who are a stick in the mud, the narrator uh, replies to her. Here's a quotation from an ancient Egyptian papyrus. He happens to just have this nearby. Yeah, of course. The young people no longer obey the old. This is an old Egyptian papyrus. The laws that ruled their fathers are trampled underfoot. They dress indecently and their talk is full of impudence. There always was a younger generation and there always will be. But my superior wisdom was of little avail against her persistence. You know, I was just reading uh, recently that uh, Socrates hated written word. <laughs> That was, he got real mad about it. He's like, oh, people are so lazy nowadays. They're writing things down because they can't remember them. <laughs> That's brilliant. Millennials. <laughs> so they go out and they rip it up. As they hit different bars and music halls, they pick up a bit of an entourage. Mm -hmm. Ilion is hungry and there happens to be an all night restaurant. So they go there like at 3 a.m. She's hammered and horny. 
and she says that she's hot. So she starts taking her clothes off down to her bra and panties. I've done it. And then she throws herself at a strange man and she says, take me, I'm yours. And they totally make out. <laughs> and there's nothing special about that guy necessarily. She says, I'll be anybody's in this room. I mean, she's like throwing herself at everybody. The narrator tries to rein her in. So she moves in on him, but he is into what she's offering. So, uh, she goes back to the first guy. Then they take off in a taxi and, and get it on. Well, such is the world, the narrator thinks. He just kind of lets her go. So one of the guys in the entourage they picked up is a bit of an intellectual as well. So he and the narrator are, uh, get to talking and they go for a walk. As they're out, a woman propositions them. His new friend asks how much and she says a price. And then he walks away. She lowers her price and he still walks away until finally she says that she'll do him for free. Yeah. And then he just, whatever, blows her off and walks away. And the narrator thinks, man, that was a real dick move. Like, why did you ask her about her payment if you weren't interested? And he goes, oh, you know, I just like to fun little game I like to do. And he's like, man, this guy's a jerk. Yeah. But the guy says that the reason he was doing it to her is because that she was a pathological case. It's a disease, he went on to say. They are as if possessed by a beast. Did you know that there is a new school of psychology that is returning to the old belief in possession? That was the ancient psychology, too. The Romans, for example, thought of insatiable sexual appetite as due to possession by a wolf. So we're hitting on some thematic elements here. Mm. The wolf and sex or lust are tied together. And he goes on to give a bit more background on that. The word wolf is to be recognized in the Latin vulva and in the word lupinar, a brothel, lupus being Latin for wolf. You know the Roman festival of the Lupercalis? It would correspond to our carnival and was characterized by a complete abandonment of morals. So the narrator starts thinking about Ilian, if he was going to ever see her again. Like, she just ran off with some ra random guy. Yeah. She's not from this town. He's not even sure where she's supposed to be staying, where her stuff is. And then he actually says, well, you know, I didn't actually see her again uh, until three years later, and she was married. He thinks that her husband might actually be the guy that she hooked up with that night, but he can't remember. And of course, he doesn't want to bring it up if he yeah. isn't the guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to mention that. But as promised by the introduction, Ilian has exited the story. She truly wasn't important to the book other than she set things in motion with her youthful sexual abandon. Anyway, our narrator has had enough of this guy that he's hanging out with and parts ways with him and then he goes to a park and sits down. These two guys come over near him and they put all this rubbish on the ground that they've collected over the day. And then in the rubbish, there is this book and the narrator picks it up and he looks at it. One of the guys says that it's a special rare book and that he's going to make a lot of money off of it. I mean, the guy doesn't know that. He's no. just saying it because he sees the narrator is interested in it. It could be anything. It's just a few junky sheets of paper bound together. Looking at it, the narrator sees the words, the Lupercal temples became the later brothels or lupinars. Still today in Italian, lupa signifies both wolf and wanton. And he was thinking, whoa, we were just talking about that. <laughs> yeah. It's so weird when you have a synchronicity occur like that. Like, yeah. just the other day I was talking to Heather about how the word testicle actually comes from the Latin word testis, which is a term for somebody that witnesses or gives testimony in a legal setting. And it was so crazy because the TV was on in the background. And, like, just then as we were having that conversation, a commercial for Perry Mason came on and he had his balls out. <laughs> <laughs> Such a weird synchronicity. Oh, boy. He has this book, and he wants to buy it, but he, he's got to play it cool because these guys obviously want money for it. So he offers the guy a franc for it, and the guy just ignores him. And then he has this ploy. He just throws the book down and walks away. And the guy stops him and says, well, okay, okay. 
and they finally agree on five francs. What did he get for that move? The manuscript, he discovers, is the Gallier Report, 34 sheets of closely written French and unsolicited defense of Sergeant Bertrand Calais at the latter's court-martial in 1871, and it is written by Amar Gallier. This manuscript is such a mind-blower, this found document, that he was going to publish it as is and just add some annotations, but then he thinks, man... This is so good. I'm going to put my PhD on hold and totally concentrate just on this. Do mm-hmm. my own investigations, put a bunch of my own political opinions in there. Mm-hmm. This is what I came to Paris for. The werewolf of Paris. Let's do this. And so, I, you know, I guess maybe the narrator is Guy Endor. I, I don't know what, how much time he spent in Paris, though. He was educated for a while as a child in Vienna. It means nothing to me. And he'd actually done some translations of Hans Heinz Ewers. Mm-hmm. And remember, we did one of that author's stories, The Spider, which was about the guy in the window mimicking the oh, person right. across the way. Yeah, and that yeah, was, yeah. That mm-hmm. was in turn inspired by The Invisible Eye, which we also right. covered. And anyway, translating the Ewer stuff inspired him, apparently, to write this book. So oh. there's some connection there. That and his lefty communist philosophies, but we'll get to that in later episodes. The book starts off with Gallier talking about the old world and the knowledge it had about the supernatural. With science on the rise, people tend not to take the old ways too seriously, but there is truth in them. He also attributes the church for killing off lots of monsters and evil things out there and making the world a much safer place. Yeah, he's like the superstitious version of a bacteriologist talking to an anti-vaxxer. Like, (laughs) look, we wiped out measles and that's great. But it doesn't mean measles don't exist. The measles can come back. (laughs) Same thing if you don't stay pure of heart and say your prayers by night. The narrator has a hard time finding info on this Amar Gallier. But he finds a living Amar Gallier who turns out to be the great nephew of the original Amar Gallier. This Amar is able to tell the narrator about his great uncle uh, who wrote a lot of political pamphlets always attributed to Anonymous. The elder Amar Gallier was born in 1824 and died in 1890. He was wounded badly in the street fighting of 48. Uh, This is known as the February Revolution. This was the revolution that ended the Orleans monarchy, which only lasted from 1830 to 1848, and replaced it with the Second French Republic. This was part of a wave of revolutions that swept Europe in 1848 that was known as the Spring of Nations or People's Spring. The recently named Arab Spring kind of derives from that. Mm-hmm. These were democratic revolutions that were attempts to remove old feudal orders across the continent. Really quick history. In France, they had already had the French Revolution. That kicked off in 1789 and ended a system of monarchy that went back all the way to the ninth century. That was what the people in France were used to. Right. Ten years after the revolution and all of the things that happened within that decade, Napoleon finally overthrows the government. By 1804, he has declared himself emperor mm-hmm. and spends the next ten years basically taking over most of Europe. But... As memorialized in the Abba song, he surrenders at Waterloo, and uh, we're back to the monarchy in France until this February Revolution of 1848. At that time, political gatherings were deemed illegal, as was freedom of the press, etc., under King Louis-Philippe. But people started having these sort of banquets as a means to circumvent that and Mm -hmm. gathered to talk politics. The king cracked down on the banquets. The people pushed back. They're street fighting. Mm -hmm. Monarchy is down once again. And that's when we get the Second Republic, as you mentioned, which Mm -hmm. is an elected government, but it turns really conservative really quickly. And so in June of 48, there's yet another insurrection, a bloody, unsuccessful rebellion in the the city in Paris. And Mm -hmm. by December, Napoleon's nephew, 
Napoleon III, is actually elected democratically yeah. as president of the Second Republic, mostly on a wave of support by the peasants, who for some reason don't have their own best interests at heart. <laughs> Only time in history that's happened. So this was great. He, you know, but he was the first guy to hold the title of president in France. He's the youngest mm-hmm. president ever since the recent election of Macron. And in France, this was the first direct popular vote, which is awesome democratic stuff. But according to their rules, you could only hold one term. So when it was time to step down, Napoleon was like, that, and he established the Second French Empire, taking the throne. Wah, wah. That lasted until 1870. So right up until the events that will be affecting the main characters of the story, which is the Franco-Prussian War of 1871, that's everything you kind of need to know in a nutshell. Anyway, the author of this narrative, Gallier, was wounded in those conflicts in 1848. He's a bit crippled thereafter, something maybe even a little nuts. At one point, he became a priest, but that didn't last long because he wasn't a very good priest. Then he got into the spiritualist stuff, seances and things like that. The church didn't like that, so he retired from the church and he lived near a parish in the countryside of France until he died. When the younger Amar asks what all the questions are about, the narrator is dodgy and says that he's just wondering because he has this manuscript where the man's uncle was defending a guy who supposedly raped someone. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of a strange thing to admit. If like rape is the thing, yeah, that's the thing you're admitting to. That's the thing you're admitting to. So whatever the real truth is is gonna be much worse. Yeah, whatever it is about Bertrand, the guy in the document, it's pretty bad. The narrator it actually says in the text, rape sounded best in the pleasant atmosphere of the dapper lieutenant. Yes, rape sounded best. <laughs> I hope that's the only time that sentence has ever been constructed. But it sounds like this document is going to be pretty intense. Yeah, so that gets us into chapter one. This chapter is all deep, and I mean deep background. The whole book doesn't really kick off until chapter six. People should know that and hang in there. That doesn't mean this stuff isn't great. I loved these early chapters, uh, but it's all here to set up the lineage of Bertrand and I think show how he's inheriting a tradition of conflict and war. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. Anybody having to sit through the first few chapters because they're great. (laughs) I love from the first page, man, I was hooked in this book. And yeah. And a lot of times on this show, truth be told, mm. it's work to read some of these stories. Absolutely. But this was joy. This was a well, lot of Well, this is great because it, it, it both, it's engaging and it's dynamic and it's got psychology, it's got mysticism, it's got sexuality, but also it breaks 3X structure. I don't know where it's going. Yeah. It goes all over the place. It'll take time to tell you a story that might be irrelevant but it does it just for the joy of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all that stuff adds up to a pretty damn good book. Amar Gallier starts off his book by telling the tale of two noble families, the Pitavals and the Pitamuts. Our narrator is going to elaborate on this tale with his own researches. So Amar wrote some about these two families. Then he, you know, the narrator went and learned more. And so all of that's in the in the document that we're reading. So these families lived on opposite sides of a valley and they each had a castle. They hated each other and fought for generations. The constant fighting drove villagers away so there was no one to work the land Mm -hmm. and that made it hard for them to make money so they needed to borrow money and they both borrowed money from the Datini. Both families build up debt to the Datini sort of an iron bank type of entity and once in a while (laughs) one will it's funny like one of the houses will rob the other house to go pay the bills that they accumulated for fighting with the other house. It's just yeah. so ridiculous. It's just in this family story here in the background, we get all the senselessness of long war and conflict. Boom, it's right, right here just between these two castles. So one night a begging friar went to the uh, Pitiful's castle and got them to take him in. He charmed the socks off of them and they allowed him to stay the night. Well, guess what? He was a Piedmont in disguise. So he snuck up in the night and he killed the lord and lady of the castle. But he was caught by their son, this big, huge Andre the Giant kind of guy, then made this pit in a room and bricked it over except for this little hole in the top. The guy was stuck inside of there and the mm-hmm. new Lord Pitaval, which is the big Andre the Giant guy, 
kept him in there for decades, just feeding him little bits at a time, raw meat. Yeah. Really horrible, torturous thing. And I'm speeding through this, uh, but this part of the book was really great, and I was super into it, and it was very suspenseful because I didn't know what was going on in the story. Yeah, it could even stand alone, honestly. It was a really engaging chapter. Yeah, yeah. There's this slow descent in madness as he is in this hole, and then he begins to howl like a rabid beast. When people ask, Lord Pitiful says that they have a wolf imprisoned down in that hole. And the whole time, this uh, Pitamont guy is waiting for his family to rescue him. His name's Jehan or Yahan, mm-hmm. I don't know how you pronounce it, but of course, they think he's dead, so they don't show up to try and save him. So decades go by, and both the Pitavals and the Pitamonts are broke, and the Dutini call in the debt. The giant lord, now old and slow, leaves without a fuss, but the only remaining Pitamonts show up, two old ladies, and they want the remains of their long-lost kin. Yeah, they're emotional about it. One of them might have even been a wife to this man. Mm-hmm. It says, tell me where poor Yahan lies buried. And then he gives them the key to the room that has the pin in it because he's still alive and just walks out it's so cruel because they're instead of finding a body they're going to find this debased animalistic madman mm-hmm. that they used to know and then they're also going to know that they failed him all these years yeah. leaving him for dead instead of coming to rescue him the pitivals don't matter much to the greater arc of the story it's about the pitamonts and you're right the pitivals don't matter much to the greater arc but they are he does make mention he couldn't find a lot of pitivals in the records over the centuries mm-hmm. there is one Gayat de pitival who became somewhat famous. He talks about how this guy basically wound up founding the crime genre of nonfiction, you know, true crime stories. And turns out this was a real guy. Francois Gayat de Pitival mm. was a French advocate, born 1673, died 1743. He compiled a famous collection of true crime cases. Mm-hmm. And this is where we get, you know, the term cause celebre, you know, famous cases. Oh, right. Later, the literary genre of true crime, I mean, it became actually known as a Pitival. So a true crime story would be called a pitiful. Oh, wow. He kind of revolutionized that whole industry because true crime stories used to be only for legal professionals to consider. Mm-hmm. And he thought, well, the public might be interested in these kinds of things. And, of course, they ate them up and we're still consuming pitivals today. Yeah. If there was a pitiful streaming service, it would be a hit. You know, Heather <laughs> works for a production company that produces all these murder shows for the ID network. Uh-huh. And so I would say even part of my household income comes from pitivals. Wow. And Why? It's because people are werewolves who love the blood and guts. We have this base nature that is satisfied by seeing people murdered and tortured. Well, (laughs) Well, that's what the book's about. (laughs) So get get ready to refute that point of view. And that gets us into chapter two. We jump into the early 1850s in Paris. There is this widow, Madame Didier. She's a ritual lady, and around the corner from her lives a priest named Piedemont. And she was quite fond of him. Now, uh, this madam has a nephew, and his name is Amar Gallier, the guy who's written the document. Yeah, he's the guy we're... He's the one telling the story. He has been staying with her since his injury, because remember, his leg got uh, messed up, and they have this young servant named Josephine, and she is only 13 or 14 years old. So one day, there's a bad thunderstorm, and Madame Didier gets freaked out and wants holy water to protect her from the lightning. They send poor Josephine out in the storm, and she's only just started working for them so she's not even really sure where she needs to go but she runs to the priest when she gets there she's all wet and her clothes are kind of see-through and it's kind of gross the way it's described she was wet to the skin her garments clung to her her breasts had but begun to grow they caused her light dress to swell up the nipples were hard with chill and chafing of late they pained her Françoise had said to her sagely you have growing pains everyone has them was Endor's intent to gross me out? Because that's what he did. <laughs> I suppose we're supposed to understand what the priest's is got going on in his head, but to me, it's very jarring because this is a pubescent girl. Yeah, he means to gross you out. Well, he means to paint it like it is. 
she's not a woman yet, but she's starting to become a woman. Oh. I was shocked because even though there had been these loose flappers in the introduction already, I didn't know there was going to be this level of sexual content throughout the book. Yeah. And Father Pitamont is very wolf-like as he approaches her. Mm-hmm. He says, what is it, little girl? Why are you all chilled? Come and warm yourself with a glass of wine. Uh. And, of course, he is overcome with his perv lust and sexually gropes her, and then he rapes her. It has a realism to it as well, that whole scene, the way he leverages his position to talk her into stopping resisting, mm-hmm. and he, he makes her swear by the cross that she won't utter a word of what happened. That's yeah, horrible. So she goes back to the house having totally forgotten about the holy water, and they ask her what happened, and she breaks down, and she tells them. Mm-hmm. Amar is like, see? And Napoleon is visiting with the Pope right now. This is religion. I gotta tell everybody about this. I hate religion. I hate the government. I hate it. At first, Didier doesn't quite buy it. So she goes over to talk to the priest and Father Pitamont plays like he doesn't know who she's talking about. But then she notices that her container that she gave Josephine is there on the floor. And then he sees her see it. And then he just knows the game's up and he begs for forgiveness. She freaks out and runs away, but she's a good Catholic. So instead of going to the police, she goes to the bishop. Oh, He's so upset about what happened <laughs> that he just transfers the priest to another parish. <laughs> world hasn't changed much, uh, obviously. So what a surprise. The priest at the new parish keeps doing screwed up things. So they finally decide, hey, we're going to send him to, uh, you know, they say, Father Piedmont, check it out. Here's your option. You can go live with the Trappists, who are these, you know, silent brothers in a monastery. They don't speak. And of course, uh, Father Piedmont doesn't want to deal with that. So he skips down, stealing a bunch of the church's valuable items. (laughs) Jerk. Oh, God. Well, to put it mildly. Yeah. After the incident, things begin to return to normal at the house. It's just uh, Madame Didier, Amar, the cook, Francoise, and Josephine. So Amar is writing some good political stuff and notices that Josephine is always cleaning around him and giving him looks like she's trying to get him to notice her in a sexual way. And he isn't sure if she really is or if he's imagining things, but he says that he finds himself attracted to her, which disturbs him. So he keeps away from her as much as he can. This rape has kind of pushed Josephine to only see herself as a sexual object, maybe. Or it's unlocked the wanton animal nature inside of her. I don't know. I felt terrible for her. And so does Amar, so he has to fight this desire he has for her. He knows it would be wrong to take advantage of her after this has happened. So chapter three, Francoise has got some gossip for Amar. Seems that Josephine has been getting busy with a lot of guys. The butcher's mm. son, the concierge's son, the green grocer himself, everyone really. And she caught Josephine sneaking out at night, but she just said that she was going to the toilet, which she knows isn't true. She's lying about it. So yeah. Amar is going to uh, break the news to his aunt. And he goes to have a talk about what to do with Josephine and his aunt. And he attributes her rape as the event that started her down this path. Auntie Didier wants to put her in a girl's home, but Francoise says, well, actually, Josephine is pregnant. Uh Uh-oh. She's able to tell that she's three months along, coinciding with the rape. Mm. So they bring her back in, they talk to her, and she feels like she's doing nothing wrong, which, if not for her age, she isn't, you know, by having sex with these other boys. No. And Didier is going to send her off to a house for wayward girls, but then she thinks how it would look for her, so she decides to give Josephine a room and let her stay in the house. Now, she's been a servant her whole life, so Josephine really likes being served herself. Yeah, she gets a little cocky about it. Eventually, a midwife comes to check on her. Mayor Kardec, who's sort of a stern, all-business kind of lady, she has this house that pregnant girls can stay at until they give birth. Mm -hmm. She basically takes care of girls who got pregnant out of wedlock and maybe want to get rid of the baby and hide their pregnancy. So they're not going to have abortions. They come here 
Yeah. And they stay at Mayor Kardec's house, and then she takes the baby when it's born and ships it off to her relatives in Normandy, and it's adopted. Yeah. And then the person will leave like nothing ever happened. Like, hey, I just went off to have a rest or a spa Mm -hmm. or whatever. And that's kind of Mayor Kardec's whole business. So that's why she's so good at understanding everybody's unspoken intentions. She's only in the story briefly, but she's totally a a smart lady. You know, I really like her character. She knows what's going on. Auntie Amar and Francoise take turns visiting her. One time when Amar is visiting, Josephine is alone. She throws herself at him. Mm -hmm. He spurns her advances, but then he just can't hold back. And he and Josephine have sex in her room. So Amar gets home and suggests that his aunt go to the countryside to get some air, uh, remarking that she looks a bit unwell. And he convinces his aunt and Francois goes with her away. So once they're gone, he goes straight back to the house and has more sex with Josephine. Uh, He's tortured about all of this, but he can't stop himself from doing it. And he even feels, he he thinks to himself, I'm worse than that priest that raped her. And he even starts to have less angry feelings about religion because he says, you know, I'm just as weak as those people I condemned. He keeps trying to work and not see her, but Josephine is all shut up in this place. And she says that, you know, you're the only thing that I look forward to. This my life here sucks. This is terrible. If you don't come, I'll kill myself. Yeah. Months go by, and Amar's aunt writes to him and asks, you know, why he never mentions how Josephine's doing. <laughs> and he's like, Oh, shit, I'm so busted. Yeah. Somehow she knows that he's been visiting. So maybe Mayor Kardec mentioned it, not knowing that it was a secret. You know, he plays it off. He's like, Hey, auntie, <laughs> you know, I just stopped by on the way to my friends. She's like, right. Whatever, Josephine. I just come in, give her a card, one of those shiny <laughs> balloons. <laughs> Get her a snicker bar. I don't know what how she's doing, really. <laughs> By October, the auntie returns. Amar is in a serious state of melancholy because he stopped visiting Josephine now because his aunt's around and, and so's uh, Francoise. He feels like he's starting to go mad. Josephine is threatening suicide, so they have to transfer her to a barred windowed room. And everyone is just miserable. And that ends chapter three. And I think that is a good place to end our show. <laughs> On a good, miserable note. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I would have liked to have gotten further, but there's just so much to talk about. So much to talk about. There's a lot of political content later in the book that we'll be able to rush through. Mm-hmm. But next week, we're finally going to get to the birth of Bertrand, who's our cute little werewolf boy. Yeah. And he's going to start driving the story. So I'd like to thank our reader once again, Erwan Marshall. Yeah, thank you, Erwan, for being a part of Fresh Werewolf Month. Mmm, that's good werewolf. You know it is. This is a free show. If you subscribe, you can get more episodes a month, plus access to everything that we have ever done before, ever. So check it out. Please check it out. You gotta see how this book turns out. Why do flies eat up on that one guy's eyeball? You're not gonna find out if you don't subscribe. So please do. That's all we've got for this week. Uh, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. Ah!